I'm used to using my computer. I click all day long. I click on Word. I click on, you know, I, I touch on my, on, my, on my phone. I use my finger. Is the EHR that much worse in terms of clicking than the rest of your, your computer? Yes. <laughs> I, will, I will jump right in there and say yes. It's, it's like next, next level, the amount of clicks. I am, we did highlight, I want to get the, the quote right. We, ha, we did have an exemplar, exemplar panels at our symposium. And one of them highlighted that they reduced clicks by, it was in the tens of thousands, I think. Um, oh, no, 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 I was way off. 360 million fewer clicks a year Whoa. at University of Colorado. <laughs> now, you know, what's the denominator? I don't know, and all of that. But does it matter? You know, 360 million. That just tells you the, the numbers that we're talking about here. So this was just for nurses at the University of Colorado Health System. Um, and, uh, you know, it just tells you that all, all health systems could reduce by a lot. As we say in the South, hello y'all, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help every one of you become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics chair at Vanderbilt, at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter, or at www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web. This episode, we talk in a bit more honest detail about clinician burnout and the role electronic health records are playing in taking the joy out of healthcare for some professionals and in the case of some patients, making it completely unclear what's changing in their own health. For those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, you'll recall that our last episode focused on the issue of women in health. We're joined by that team again. Allison McCoy is an assistant professor of biomedical informatics at VUMC and a true data wrangler who gets behind the scenes of the data to tell us a lot about what might be observed related to burnout. Sarah Bland is a senior project manager in the Department of Biomedical Informatics and an all-around funny person and basically my co-host on this podcast, also at VUMC. Susie Brown-Sachs was a special guest on both episodes. She's a terrific storyteller, as we've come to learn, and uses those stories to illustrate her life, both on this podcast, but much more regularly in song. We had two other special guests today. Sarah Collins-Rosetti is Assistant Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Nursing at Columbia University and the recent lead of a major symposium called 25 by 5. She'll talk all about that, but we're really excited to have her. Molly Hobensack is a PhD student at the Columbia University School of Nursing and is a National Institute of Nursing Research pre-doctoral trainee. Molly is an actively practicing nurse and will spend some time on this podcast relating stories as a nurse who deals with clinician burnout. I hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope you find it as enlightening as I did.
Well, here's the, I mean, we could talk about this, but we're not supposed to be, but I'll just say this one thing because I feel so deeply about it. It actually doesn't matter how much we all think the mask state of maybe weak or not weak. We have to get back to a period where we actually trust the CDC. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just have to. And the fact that everybody wants to be the scientist that solves every problem in a pandemic, which is killing people, and we're all these kids who are unvaccinated. I think we got to get over that shit. I mean, we've just got to stop as a society thinking we're all equally smart about everything because we're actually not. <laughs> I think the school should mandate masks. I think parents should do the best they can do. I think it is absolutely the case that schools ask your kids to wear shoes and that there are kids who come in sandals. Those kids are going to continue to do that, but we don't need to change the rules to account for the child who's going to wear sandals at school. As a pediatrician, I am very comfortable saying this. All my patients would tell you I would say this. I also don't think you should name your child after body parts like vagina. And I've told many parents, please don't do that to their children. But they still do. And I just think they're idiots. And I move on. How's that for an intro? <laughs> I didn't know that that was happening. Name oh, yeah, we had I'll never forget. We had a pair of twins, nice. Regina and Vagina. And um, we all looked at the mother and said, so V-A-G-I-N-A is vagina. Um, so while you're calling it vagina, this kid is for the rest of her life yeah. going to be dealing with every single person saying your child's name is vagina. Yeah, that's horrible. And yeah. and that'll probably help dictate her career choice. <laughs> so, yeah. so I know. I so know. let's fix this. Yeah, kids grow up to be adults, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Are you sure about that? No, well, not all. Are you sure about that? Yeah. Right. We'll do a couple of things. First of all, Sarah, I'm going to make you stand up in a second, just so you know. <laughs> Molly, how are you? Yeah, my name is Molly, and I'm a PhD student at Columbia, and I work with Kevin and Sarah on their 25 by 5 committee. And specifically, I'm here because I recently worked as a geriatric medical surgical nurse. Hello, I'm Sarah Rossetti. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Columbia. I also have a joint appointment in the School of Nursing. So my background um, includes working as a critical care nurse. I'm co-chair of the 25 by 5 um, Symposium to Reduce Documentation Burden. Which we're going to talk about some today. Yep. Um, but Sarah, the reason I thought I should have you stand is because Susie, you'll appreciate this. Could you stand up? I'm happy to. I'm happy to. <laughs> Actually, I need to stand every now and then. And it's quite uh, awkward on Zoom now. Yeah. <laughs> so I am due... Um, in about a week oh, <laughs> any time so if I if I uh you know yep. leave the leave the meeting at any moment you know why yeah really I have to tell you yeah. guys I mean we've been on so many zoom calls this whole last six months and she's been pregnant for obviously all of that time mm -hmm. you could not tell from where you see up that she's yeah. been pregnant and then last yeah. meeting somebody said stand up and you stood up and we're like I wow I know, very pregnant. He's Knocked also the very, camera he's off very the... big. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. And I yeah. think a few other people here can probably appreciate that. Um, Hi, I'm Allison McCoy. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt. And I work with the Vanderbilt Clinical Informatics Center in our new clinical informatics core. I am the Sarah Bland. Uh, I am a senior project manager in the Center for Precision Medicine, and, uh, and I do a lot of projects related to um, genetics in the medical record system. Uh, and I'm just the comedic relief for this podcast. Got that right. 
true. I'm Susie Brown, and I am an advanced heart failure and heart transplant cardiologist at Vanderbilt, and I'm also a singer-songwriter. And and she usually reverses those. (laughs) So the reason we're back together, um, and with with a few additional guests, um, is that uh, we had a really interesting set of conversations going into our, we had sort of a, this is like a two-parter. And in part one, we talked a little bit about, you know, frankly, women in healthcare. And the whole idea of it was to talk not about women in healthcare, but to actually talk about these issues that relate to clinical decision support and burden and sort of what we in informatics should be doing or could be doing to make things easier for clinicians. But we decided to completely talk about the first topic in the first one and the second topic in this one. So we're here to talk about that. Um, And I'm actually really excited about it. And of course, once again, as the sort of male moderator to an all-female cast, I have no idea where this is going to go, but we'll go there because somebody will be, you know, biking and listening to us and be really happy that we took that turn. So we'll go that way. Okay. So Susie, do you perceive that there is some issue with physician burden right now, um, burnout? Definitely. Oh, definitely. 100%. Give me an example. Give us an example of something you've seen that you would be like, clearly that was because of burnout. The thing, I mean, I guess the thing you see most on the surface is just people seeming unhappy, a little bitter, a little cynical. Yeah. How has COVID affected affected that? I mean, I think it's made it a lot worse. Just, I, I personally feel better being vaccinated, but I think especially before we were all vaccinated and, um, and just all the uncertainty. And I think, yeah, I think it really added just a whole new element of stress to us. Yeah. So Molly, what about from the nursing perspective? Is, is burnout a real thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think similar to what Susie said, um, I think that it comes across differently for every person. Um, and sometimes it comes across as cynicism and sometimes it comes across as, um, just being apathetic and just trying to get through the day, um, the best way you can. Um, have you seen any examples of like any examples you'd share? Um, yeah, I think that, um, so I, I did, I had spent a little bit of time in the ICU during my practicum, um, during nursing school. And I think that it looks really differently for ICU nurses versus medical surgical nurses. Um, But I think that at the root of it on the medical surgical unit, I think that you just see this sense of exhaustion around um, your coworkers and yourself and just knowing that you have to come back the next day. I think you see it come up in conversation and how people talk about the work. Have any of you as on the patient side experienced anything that relates to burnout? We, um, so my son just spent 12 days in the hospital recently after a complex heart surgery and his nurses were just amazing. But I remember having a conversation with um, one of them in the pediatric cardiac ICU and Um, she was in school to be a nurse practitioner and is just dead set on getting out of the ICU. Like you mentioned, Molly, it's exhausting. It's funny you mentioned that, Allison, um, because I just had my like annual checkup with my PCP last week and she has been really great about sending out notes to inform people of like where things are about the pandemic and, um, really put a nice personal spin on things, um, 
she has a two-year-old who also has a heart condition. So, you know, she's very uh, informative on just, listen, you know, I wouldn't give you this information if it didn't matter this much to me. Um, and she, when I went in last week, she said, you know, I sent out one of those long emails saying like, please take this advice, please mask, please get the vaccine. So I went home and cried because I was just so exhausted. Um, and she said, and the next day, a patient scheduled a 30 minute visit with me and it was just to argue about the vaccine. <laughs> and she was like, I am danged if I do and danged if I don't, because I'm trying to help these people understand. She said, I'm getting to a point where I don't want to come to work anymore because they're just not wanting to listen at all. You know, we're hitting that group that is just really adamant that, you know, they're going to get COVID before, you know, they even consider some of the, the science coming out of the CDC or the NIH because they just really believe what they believe to be true. And so, it, you know, even on the PCP side, just the general, you know, care, they're getting burned out too. And my mom, who is, uh, she did documentation um, specialty and, and she's a nurse by trade, um, actually retired this year. She retired last week. She said, I'm done. She said, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Uh, healthcare is exhausting, especially when your coworkers, um, she was working for an insurance company. So especially when your coworkers don't even believe the science anymore. Do we think, do we really think informatics is a big part or IT is a big part of burnout? Well, I think if, you, if you're listening to the conversation right now, it doesn't come through as a big part, certainly not. Um, there are so many parts to burnout, absolutely. I think what we've focused on in our work is the extra burden that extra documentation requirements put on clinicians, which just exacerbates perhaps many of the problems, for instance, that we're hearing right now. You know, Kevin, you were asking as a patient, have you seen, you know, have you kind of seen burden or burnout? And as, you know, a family caregiver at different times, I think I've seen it and probably sometimes excused it too, because mm. I know what goes on on both sides, right. you know, so in explaining to my family members, oh, this is, this is why it's delayed. This is why this is going on. And, you know, I guess it's just, um, our, we, we have plenty of inefficiencies in our health system, right? And then the frontline providers are kind of the face of it and they have to, you know, <laughs> They have to take the brunt of, of um, any negative feedback around that. But then on top of it, on top of it, we do have a lot of unnecessary requirements of them that make them less efficient. And that's what we're focused on in terms of IT and documentation. And the goal is that your documentation should reflect the care you deliver, not that you should be required to document certain things because they're required for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I mean, yes, 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 and yes. Because all that documentation that seems unnecessary that you need to do, you need to do to, you know, meet your billing requirements, to meet your RVU requirements, so you can pay for your mortgage and pay for your kids to go to daycare and pay your med school loans still 20 years later. All that stuff makes you go home later or it makes you work at night. And that reduces the amount of time you have to recharge and do the things that fill you back up after being on the front lines, all the hoops and the insurance red tape and all that stuff. Like just last week, I was on service taking care of 
a man who had had a heart transplant and had had a really complicated course, so had been in the hospital for two months. And he was literally on the launching pad, ready to go. We were just um, needing insurance approval and it required a peer-to-peer -peer authorization. So you have to make a phone call as the physician and then you talk to some person and then they say someone's gonna call you back. And it just, it's so inconvenient. And someone had already done it the week before, but it was only good for seven days. So then we were waiting for me to like for them to call me back. And the patient was livid, angry, <laughs> borderline verbally abusive to us. Like, and we're having to talk them all off the ledge all the time. And yeah, it's exhausting. So other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really hard. So then when you go back to your office and you know, after giving like everything you have to these patients um, to support them emotionally and take good care of them physically. And then you sit down to face the 15 or 20 notes you have to write. Yeah, it's a now, lot. Do you write those notes before you go into the supply room and cry or is that after? Because I'm <laughs> right. trying to like gauge the, uh, you know, reality of Grey's Anatomy at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have to learn. I've, I've been out of fellowship now over 10 years. So I've had to, you have to learn how to preserve yourself emotionally just to be able to, to do, do this. Yeah. My husband said, like my husband, I have such a poker face all the time because I've just learned to just dumb it. I just have to dull it down if I'm just gonna get through. And my husband always says like, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea where you're at right now. Um, Cause I'll say I had a really hard day, but I just say it like super flat and he doesn't really clock it or believe me unless I freak out or start screaming or start crying or something because like you just learn to be so flat and even, even like no matter what you're feeling inside, just cause you have to, or else you can't do this job. But then I come home from a week of being on service and I have no idea how I'm feeling. I have no idea where I am. Jeez. That's, that's awful. <laughs> Molly, did you feel similarly when you were on service? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. I also, I would say you just don't have time to react because you have to balance like 500 other things and to like feel like just the busyness and the weight of like all the responsibilities you have, like including documentation to think about that and to feel that weight, but just slow you down and you just don't have time for it on the floor. Um, and I think that it's hard because you always have to be thinking through like, what do I want to prioritize? Like going to the bathroom or help documenting my assessment or helping the patient go to the bathroom. And you have like all these responsibilities and they're all important. And I think that going back to what Sarah was talking about in the sense of like these documentation requirements, it's hard to tease out like, is this document, why am I doing this documentation? Like, I have all these other responsibilities. Like, why, why is this, like, why should this be a priority? And I don't think that that's always the best explained to clinicians. Um, Sarah or Molly, like, do y'all want to explain a little bit of what that means when you say documentation and what that burden is? Essentially, everything that you do for the patient should be documented, as is, is kind of the working assumption of many clinicians and many hospitals, if we're talking about in the health, in the inpatient setting. Um, so there's this notion in nursing school that you're taught, if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. So that means you turn to the patient, you document. You're supposed to turn a patient every one to two hours, um, you know, if, if they're immobile, 
for example. So that's just one piece of documentation that you have to do that frequently. So between that every one to two hours, you're also gonna be documenting, obviously their vital signs and different you know, physiological measurements, but any assessments that you do for them. You also have to document the education that you give to patients. And a lot of this that I'm talking about is from the nursing perspective. You need to document medications, of course, that you give to patients. Um, you should document, you know, really like any conversations even that you have with family members, you know, so what was that about? What, what did you teach them? What were they saying? What were their concerns? It's not ideal to wait till the end of your shift to do all of that because, you know, then it's outdated because things do change pretty quickly. Um, and so it really just snowballs. And so if you think about those are, and I didn't, it's not a comprehensive list. Those are the things that you need to do for one patient. Well, Molly keeps referring to floor nurses. So they'll care for, how many patients, Molly, do you care for at a time? Uh, four to five. Four to five, yeah. Um, and, and there have had to be restrictions on how many patients a nurse can care for because limits will be pushed on that. In the ICU, you're caring for one to two patients. Um, they're much more acute, so there's more of more things to do per patient. Um, but we actually, you know, we did a study where we looked at documentation that nurses do only in the flow sheets. So this is just some structured stuff like their vital signs, some skin assessments, you know, how's their breathing. And they were documenting one, one data point on average about every minute. You know, they batch it, right? Yeah, so it's not yeah. that they're actually at the computer every minute, but that's what it averages out to, both for ICU nurses and for floor nurses, pretty much the same average. I mean, it's just, and that's only the flow sheet documentation. And then, you know, what, what I know what's really painful about it is it's not just what you document, but the fact that you have to filter. So you're not only yeah. writing it, but you're thinking about what do you have to write? What don't you have to write? Um, you get interrupted. So, you know, you're taking care of one patient, another patient has something going on, you should probably document that too. You may also have to do work while you're, you know, so there's a, there's a thing, you know, there's this issue of being distracted. So then you have to remember what you were doing before. And I imagine it just snowballs and, and it really changes the way people feel about going to work and certainly going home. Alice, you know, your specialty is both in analyzing a lot of these data and developing clinical decision support. So what's from a data perspective, what have you experienced? Uh, is it, does it look as bad as we've just described it? It does. You know, I've, I've also looked at some flow sheet data, like Sarah mentioned, um, and we looked at time from when the um, assessment was taken to document it. And there's definitely a delay in there, including with significant, um, you know, outside of normal limit values. Um, and one of the things that we do when we build clinical decision support, which is um, functionality within the electronic health record that is intended to help clinicians make decisions like warning them that, you know, their patient's blood pressure is too high or this medication interacts with something else they're taking. Um, we depend on the information in the electronic health record to be accurate and up to date. And so if, you know, we don't get a blood pressure until, you know, 20 minutes after it's taken, maybe that's 20 minutes later than we could have intervened on somebody. But we know that, you know, the nurses and all of the clinicians like, actually taking care of the patient is much more important than how timely we document it. 
Um, and so, you know, we have to look at um, that data through the lens of a clinician. So it's important that we partner with, you know, our clinicians like Sarah and everyone to understand this workflow when we're building this decision support. So Susie, you're a busy doctor. You have these really sick patients, but you must obviously have these days where you say, I'm just not going to document this stuff. Is there some way that you could just get away with saying, I'm just not going to do it? What would happen if you just said, I'm not going to do it? Well, I have to write a note. I mean, legally, a attending physician has to see the patient every day. So I have to write something. Um, in terms of that documentation, I kind of like, so I have everything templated into smart phrases. So I can just, I have a template for each type of patient visit. If it's a heart transplant or heart failure with pre-transplant, or they have a ventricular assist device, I have, and I have it for inpatient and outpatient. So I have that all templated. So those notes I have gotten kind of down to a science, but that's only part of like the overall burden of documentation and paperwork and, you know, forms we have to fill out. Um, so do you ever cut yeah. corners? Is there anything that you feel, feel like I could probably document this, but it's just going to be too complicated? I just call it I, like I'm, I've accepted that sometimes I'm just going to do B minus work on my notes. Wow. I wouldn't do a C plus, you know what I mean? But I'll do B minus, but it will have like the, imp I have, it's pain. It was painful to learn and the coding requirements are always changing, but I've tried to at least like understand the coding requirements enough that I have all the required elements in my note that's, they're already templated. And I do try and have the, just, I prioritize the important physical exam findings and then just my problem list, because that helps me make sure I'm taking good care of the patient. If I have a good problem list, I know what are all the active things we're managing. And then I do the plan, but are they always like beautiful and beautiful prose? Definitely not. But I do make sure I have the important content in there, even if it's not like, doesn't have bows and ribbons on it. I'll do B minus work. Kevin, I have a problem list. Will you help me with it? <laughs> yeah, that's a little personal, but uh, <laughs> get through. You can add uh, it to my problem list. <laughs> Susie, you you, met, uh, you mentioned coding requirements. What do you mean by that? So our reimbursement is based on the complexity of the patient encounter. Um, and you may think like, oh, greedy doctor, she's just worried about being reimbursed. But the truth is that, um, yes, I am, because I have med school loans to pay off. I have a family to support and I am working my booty off. I have world-class expertise in this. And for us to be, you know, getting paid less than people reading echoes in the echo lab and taking Wednesdays off to play golf is totally because um, it's totally because of the broken coding requirements. So you want to get reimbursed for what the actual value is of what you're providing. Requirements are always changing, but you have to document this many new things that you ask the patient about, this many labs, these many things that are not blood work, but a different study. And then number of patients, I mean, number of problems and how complex the problems are and how much a threat to the patient's life it is. And like, it's just really- It's exhausting to even hear you list it all. Yeah, yeah. it's so complicated. And like, you know, I have a medical degree from Harvard and I find it hard to keep track of all, like keep, keep it straight. Was it like this with paper records um, or has it gotten more intense with electronic records? We kind of moved to, I was still, my first job as an attending, I was on paper records and there was some stuff about coding, but I feel like it's gotten worse and worse, like in the era of, of electronic records. But I think also just 
I don't know. Everything just seems more complicated than it was before. Maybe I just wasn't aware of it because I was in training. Sarah, Rosetti, is that true? Has it gotten more complicated? Yeah, I think um, there's more information. Yeah. So that's part of the complicated, like the complexity of it. So we absolutely have to acknowledge that when we were on paper records, there was plenty of care delivered without information that clinicians should have had. You know, whether the record was lost in the basement storage mm -hmm. somewhere, or you're at another hospital and you just can't get access, you know, and, th and that's not a good thing, right? You know, we want to know patients' allergies, especially when they show up and they can't tell us, you know, there are plenty of things that, plenty of things that electronic health records do to improve safety in that regard. But at the same time, there's a problem of information overload. So the information's there, but it's in the electronic health record, but it can be hard to find and hard to find quickly. Yeah. Whereas I remember when, so I started on paper records for kind of a hybrid system. I was working at Mass General when I started working in the CCU there. And you would be able to flip through the paper chart and easily see when notes changed, right? If I was reading the physician notes, I could see, oh, okay, here's a longer note from the prior day. And there's some new information there. And it was kind of this really easy way to just pick up on changes with the patient over time. But you just don't have the same type of visual thing that happens in the electronic health record now. Now, can we do it? Yes, I think so. There are plenty of new visualization approaches to data, right? But it needs to be integrated into the record and we, we need to figure out the best ways to do that. So we just finished this meeting and full disclosure, I was a part of this, Molly was a part of this, Sarah was a part of this and others um, jumped in. I think Allison might've been on at least one of the sessions um, where what we talked about was this idea of 25 by five. So Sarah, what does that mean and given this conversation, how are things going to be different? So 25 by 5 stands for um, we want to reduce documentation burden to 25% of what it currently is in within the next five years. Um, so it's it's a lofty goal that we 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 feel it should be a lofty goal because that's what we need to get um, national efforts behind it, you know, from the local level all the way up to the national level from policy advocacy groups and health systems and, you know, providers just making changes. And so we held a symposium this past January and February. It was held across um, six weeks on Friday afternoons for a couple of hours. And we had clinicians attend. We had representatives from health systems we had some patient representatives, we had vendor representatives, um, we had government representatives. So kind of the whole spectrum of those involved and who would need to be involved in making changes happen to our doc, essentially to our documentation requirements. But we also learned it's not just requirements, it's also culture and practice so that we can reduce documentation burden for our clinicians. And when I say clinicians, that's all types of health professionals, not just limited to physicians and nurses that we primarily often talk about. You know, I heard, I heard calls to action that we thought were gonna be really important. Could you summarize what you think those are? And I'd love to get Susie and Molly's sense of 
and Allison's sense of, do those calls to action make sense? So we have synthesized a lot of different data that we have, but some calls to action we have grouped for some different stakeholders. So calls to action for providers and health systems. Some of this has to do with educating clinicians on actually how to write good notes that are short, you know, so not having long notes, not using copy paste, for instance, but being complete, but but being accurate, um, but also increasing um, functionality within our EHRs for providers and health systems so that that problem of information overload, you know, isn't as much of a problem so that there are, there's good information retrieval in real time. Susie seemed to be really happy about the provider education about how to write shorter notes. Is that something you think we need, Susie? Well, I feel like, well, I think a lot of the residents and stuff do a lot of like cutting and pasting and carrying over. And I don't blame them necessarily. I think the part, honestly, that gets really cumbersome is sometimes all the labs and studies that are automatically copied over because then you just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. All you really want to know is their assessment and plan. What are their thoughts and what are they going to do about it? That's the most important. And then some key physical exam findings and maybe just like if the patient's feeling differently from yesterday. Um, so I'll just highlight one more for providers and health systems, which is to implement interdisciplinary notes. So this is a way to reduce redundant documentation so that you know everyone on the care team doesn't need to document the same thing that occurred. We had a family meeting today and we're all gonna write about it. You know, let's you know, let's have the interdisciplinary note that can handle that interdisciplinary information. That's not that simple of an action item because it does change different clinical practice models. Billing implications too, absolutely. So Allison, do our EHRs support interdisciplinary notes or is that like a whole set of things we have to build? Oh, that's definitely something we'd have to build. Um, I can't even imagine the logistics of that. I, you know, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking about these shorter notes is something that is sort of a newer concept, but now that um, we have to share notes with patients, that should sort of change how we think about notes too. So I have spent a lot of time reading notes as the parent of a child with complex medical history. Um, and I've been, I was previously at a hospital that had open notes and now Vanderbilt is sharing notes. And it's so interesting reading the notes, how different they are, how long some of them are and how little information is actually in that note. Um, you know, cause I always want to go back and, you know, think about what the physician may have told me um, and then what they may have written down and just making sure I have a full understanding of everything. And it takes a lot of digging to find that what I, the information that I'm looking for. It's like maybe buried in the last sentence of this super, super long note. And everyone writes different things. There's a lot of carryover from last visits and information about me in the notes. They always put like, you know, my occupation, my husband's occupation. I'm not sure why that's relevant in the note. Um, but the, the notes are too long. And you're bringing up a great point, which is, you know, as we're looking at these calls, one of the rationale here is what will your patient think when they see this, right? So if, if they see 10 notes that are largely identical, but they know that there were differences, they have to, I'm sure they have to wonder what just happened. <laughs> Sarah, keep going, Rosetti. Um, so we also had calls to action for health IT vendors. And some of that was for health IT vendors to develop measurement tools so that locally 
we can actually start to look at documentation practices and analyze them. So Allison, you know, this would be, I think right up your alley with some, um, you know, providing some tools for different analytics to understand what is it that clinicians have to document? What are the implications of that and how, you know, you have to measure it first to come up with solutions on how it could perhaps be. Fixed. Also, there's a large emphasis that we had for health IT vendors on training and coming up with kind of best training practices and toolkits that can, that can kind of standardize that, but training to good documentation, not just training to button clicking, I think is, is certainly what we were. Sarah, do you still see like the remnants of the template in the note where like, I chose not to fill out something, but I also left all the instructions in my notes. Does that still happen? Yeah. 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 You still see that quite a bit. And, um, you know, you would, when I first started seeing that, I was like, it's probably like an older doctor who's still getting used to like the system, you know, back a few years ago, Vanderbilt switched from uh, star panel to e-star, which is an Epic product. So it's just, you know, one of the physicians that didn't get used to, you know, doing some of the, the charting this certain way now. And so maybe it's just a training issue and it's an older doc who wants to retire anyway, so they don't care. No, you see it across the board. You just see, you know, it's someone in a rush or it's someone who, you know, did a copy and paste. So you're seeing kind of the same thing and they're just not noticing that they've left something in the note that they could have easily erased, you know, and so you're seeing that burnout on, on the documentation itself. I was hoping that was gone. It's so easy. It happens to me. I'll look at a note from yesterday and I'll say, oh, whoops, I didn't, you know, (laughs) that thing. It's really easy when you're writing 20 notes and you're like tired and, you know, a little frazzled, it's, it's really easy for it to happen. Yeah. And then you cut and paste it, which means every note gets note bloat of things that aren't even really the note. I like that note bloat. Just looked and there were 54 notes from my son's 12 day hospital stay. Wow. Jeez. Four and a half day. Is there a call to action for um, insurance companies with this too? Because a lot of the requirements sound like they come from the insurance companies or CMS um, to make sure that things are documented for reimbursement. So indirectly. So we have calls to action for policy and advocacy groups to kind of attend to some of those issues that would then hopefully change some of those requirements from insurance companies. Like what? Um, Well, particularly having to do with physician billing, funding some innovative research so that how, how we could perhaps still fulfill some billing requirements, but not in a way that takes up clinician time so that there are automated ways that that information can then be sent over to insurance companies. So that's one. And, and then having more you know, technology that can just kind of reliably capture the information for reimbursement. So our approaches to those action items were essentially taking the burden away from the clinician and coming up with technologically innovative solutions for it. Right, I was so hoping that one of the suggestions would be give the insurance companies access to the EHR. And I know that Epic's been exploring that model, but Susie and Molly, imagine that you document what you just want to document. You could literally document, saw patient, no better, but everything else is already in the chart because the vitals are there, the labs are there, the, the number of visits they have. 
Let the insurance company do all the mining they want to do to validate the claim that you put in. It just seems like such an obvious thing. I've mentioned this to other clinicians and they've said, oh my God, that would be awful. And right, yeah, I'm, so you I'm don't sure have Ellen Wright Clayton right now, as you say that, because I could see, uh, or Brad Malin, because both of them I could see being like, but data privacy, data privacy. They already see it all. What were you going to say, Susie? You're saying like, we wouldn't have to copy the vital signs into our note because it's already other places in the right. chart and copy the labs. You could just say, I reviewed the vital signs. Yep. You know. well, that, per our call to action, another one for um, providers is actually for vendors, I'm sorry, is that it would actually be logged that you viewed the vital signs. You wouldn't even need to write that in because it, there's an audit trail in the log that makes it clear and that makes that kind of findable information, I suppose, then for the insurance company. So really freeing up your time even more that you don't need to tell us what you did because we, we could, you know, it would, it would be clear. The P, I mean, I'm sure most attendings, no matter how old, do log into the chart to look at the vital signs, but some attendings on rounds just hear the vital signs from the, you know, the nurse practitioner or resident or something. So they would have to like click right. on the tab, but that would take 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you, I did a paper with a student uh, a couple of years ago called the breadcrumbs paper, where we did this. We went through the audit log and we found that most of what we needed to do our ENM coding, evaluation and management coding, you could get almost everything except the physical exam just from the audit log. Um, didn't have to do any documenting about it at all. It's fascinating. And, and so there's clearly room here. What's fascinating is that not everybody who's a physician feels as comfortable to, for the point that Sarah made about, the, about some of the ways to automate this. So I think one of the big challenges is gonna be getting from these calls to action to actual action. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's getting the right stakeholders and groups who you know, can actually move some of this forward together behind these calls to action. Yeah, without a doubt. Which is gonna take a lot of thinking. There's a report today that just came out um, this is Tuesday, August 10th that we're recording this. And a report just came out from the National Academy of Medicine from a number of CEOs talking about the steps that they're taking locally to try to reduce documentation burnout. So it's definitely happening. And I'm hoping that the more we talk about these issues and the silliness of some of the things that Susie and Molly are putting up with becomes apparent, the more opportunities that Sarah Bland and Allison and Sarah Rossetti and I get to fix some things. Can we acknowledge too that you know, it's not just requirements, right, coming down from insurers and elsewhere, but we, we learned during our symposium that at the local level, you know, these EHRs are kind of overbuilt. And um, some of that is the culture at the institution. You know, you have to document everything. And, you know, we, we don't want to take any chance that we don't, you know, put all this structured information in and, and make sure that our nurses or physicians record it. And it's it's these kind of CYA, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry, CY, CYA, what's that mean? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know, can I say it now? Yes, you can. Um, You've said yeah. much worse. But, yeah. but um, also the decisions shouldn't be coming from the legal department. The decisions of what should be in our record really should be from clinicians asking them, what is it that you need to reflect the clinical care that's delivered for your types of patients. 
So I'm extra motivated now to start Clickbusters part two to tackle the notes. Um, what is what is Clickbusters? Not you might ask that. So Clickbusters is an initiative that we um, established with the Vanderbilt Clinical Informatics Center. And our goal was to improve the safety and quality in our electronic health record and reduce burnout by optimizing what we could. And we started with our clinical decision support alerts because we know that one of the burdensome things to clinicians is these alerts that sort of pop up all the time and tell you that something you are doing may be wrong, you're about to hurt your patient. But it turns out a lot of these alerts are wrong um, and that's just a waste of everyone's time. And so we um, put together this program, we put together um, a lot of learning tools and we asked clinicians at Vanderbilt to help us improve these alerts. And so. Um, everyone got to sort of adopt an alert, sort of like the adopt a highway program. You picked an alert um, either that you saw a lot that bothered you or it showed to a lot of your colleagues. I mean, we kind of walked them through the process of reviewing data about the alert, um, coming up with ways to improve the alert, and then actually making those improvements um, in the EHR. And when we did two rounds of this. Um, we had nine participants the first time and 20 participants the second time, just physicians who um, just really wanted to help make things better. And we ended up um, reducing the number of alerts the first time by 50,000 alert clicks every week, which was about 10% of the alerts we had in our EHR. And the second time we um, reduced it by about 22,000. Um, so that's a lot less time that clinicians are clicking on these super annoying alerts. And I think we could apply some really similar processes to reduce maybe the length of notes and the time that clinicians are spent writing notes. That would be awesome. Sarah, Susie looks incredibly excited. Her blank poker face just completely smiled when you mentioned the number of alerts that you, the number of clicks that you were able to get rid of. Susie, have you ever encountered an you alert? You have so many extra clicks it's so annoying you just want to get your work done it's like you have to just click 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 it's so annoying even just to sign on to the emr can someone fix that you have to go through like so many i have to click like five times just to open the emr it's so stupid i have to tell you since i was the one that was in charge of bringing epic here the first time that that happened to me and i realized i have like three identities in epic and i don't even really see patients anymore like I'm, I can only imagine. I don't know what you guys see. <laughs> I have to say, I was a little, I was a little surprised that you couldn't just say, "Open it with this one," and please don't ask me again. I promise you, if it's wrong, I'll fix it later. Yeah, that's a feature. So, Susie, is there anything that you click every single time and you you wonder why it's like there? Like anything you say, why aside from login, anything in the course of taking care of a patient, you'd say, "Please get rid of that one, Allison." There are some, I think I'm a little protected from some of these because our mid-level practitioners have to deal with them. But sometimes by accident, when I'm clicking on a patient, I click on, I should log in and see what it is, but some of it like progress navigator or something. And then, oh my God. Yeah. There are all these things you have to acknowledge or click or something, even just to be able to close out um, the patient's chart. Um, but I think I'm, I'm protected from some of those things because I don't really write orders. I'm really just writing my attending attestation and looking for information in the chart. And for people who don't understand that, in a health system like ours with all of this complexity, people have different roles in these systems. 
So it's entirely possible that the residents write all the orders and that all we as attendings have to do is verify that there's nothing wrong with the orders that are written. And that's totally okay because frankly, the residents understand the system of care often better than the attendings. Molly, anything that you've seen when you were there that you wish could just go away that Allison should be fixing? I think the clicking is more about like assessment clicking is what comes to mind in terms of like going to the next cell, clicking the next cell, clicking the option um, is a little bit more tedious for our workflow. I'm used to using my computer. I click all day long. I click on Word. I click on, you know, I, I touch on my, on, my, on my phone. I use my finger. Is the EHR that much worse in terms of clicking than the rest of your, your computer? Yes. <laughs> I will I will jump right in there and say yes. It's it's like next next level the amount of clicks. I am we did highlight I want to get the the quote right. We ha, we did have an exemplar exemplar panels at our symposium. And one of them highlighted that they reduced clicks by it was in the tens of thousands I think. Um, oh no, 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 that was way off. 360 million fewer clicks a year Whoa. at University of Colorado. <laughs> now, you know, what's the denominator? I don't know, and all of that, but does it matter? You know, 360 million, that just tells you the, the numbers that we're talking about here. So this was just for nurses at the University of Colorado Health System. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it just tells you that, all, all systems could reduce by a lot. Allison, do we have any idea how many clicks per patient? I have no idea. It's it's a lot because, I mean, we just measured the number of alert clicks, you know, and it was 400, 500,000 per week. Um, now that was across all, but, you know, alerts are such a small, hopefully small part of what you do, clicking different parts of the patient chart, documenting the things that you do. So... I, I, it's a lot. We need, we've got work to do. That's staggering. Yeah. Susie didn't even seem a little bit surprised by that. <laughs> the, the poker face stayed perfect. I think, uh, Sarah, though, what you mentioned um, about it being across systems, I think a good thing to note is that we do deal with uh, all systems have different flavors of EHR meaning uh, our version of Epic here at Vanderbilt is different than the version at you know, Columbia or Mayo or wherever else. And so there are all these different flavors based on the institutional needs um, or desires. Um, and so there's a lot of issues with data harmonization across systems. And so that means that one site can have you know, 300 million clicks, but what about that rural hospital in Little Tennessee who just got the system out of the box? Do they have 600 million clicks? Yeah, <laughs> Is that what's causing some of that burnout absolutely. too? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll just have to spin off a little of your point around data harmonization. You know, we want all of these health systems to have an electronic health record so that we can eventually be interoperable. We're, we're really not right now, you know, in some areas there's interoperability, but by and large, you know, um, the data do not flow back and forth because they're not harmonized between sites. Um, for a research project where we're, we've been doing a multi-site 
study looking at nursing documentation, it took us over two years to harmonize the data between those two sites. Um, you know, just because the, the, the semantic interoperability is not there. Well, you know, this has been really fascinating to me. I mean, we're, we're hearing a lot about clicks and I think the numbers are probably shocking people and burnout and, you know, there's all the ways that Sarah Rossetti and Molly and others have put together this great report called 25 by five, which we'll see online. But I do have, there's one person on the call who's probably had the most unique spin on all of this and that's Susie. So Susie, you have a great piece in Forbes. Can you tell people about what's happened with you and COVID and burnout and songwriting? And maybe um, tell, us, tell us a name of a song we should be listening to. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I process my life through music and COVID was kind of no different. So I wrote a whole bunch of songs just in the era of COVID as I was processing what was happening. Um, and, you know, I was in kind of like a deep, dark place at that time um, and didn't really know how those songs would even like find the light of day. I just was writing them for myself, but just things sort of <laughs> oddly, I was contacted by CBS, CBS this morning, and they wanted to do a profile on, on me. So um, they came, it was like, I guess earlier this year, they sent a film crew to my house. And I had like my wow. hair makeup done and we did the interview all by Zoom. And um, they did a really beautiful piece um, just on, you know, having a dual life and what my life is like. And Gail King gave me a, a great like high five quote at the end, which was awesome. And then, okay. yeah, she said something like Susie Brown. Um, I forget what she said. Something about like, I love everything about you, Susie Brown. You're wearing a lot of hats and you're wearing them well or something like that. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, maybe Oprah will hear my name. But, um, but anyway, so that was just like totally from left field and completely amazing and unexpected. Um, so I got to play some music on that little piece. And then a few weeks later, um, a writer from Forbes also did a profile just on processing life as a doctor through music. I love, how the, I love how the Forbes piece is like the small little thing in CBS <laughs> and Gail King is the real one. <laughs> So, well, I've never been on national, you know, I've been on a lot of local television, but I've never been on national television. That was, a, that was a really big deal. So given the topic of burnout and everything else, was there any particular song that you want to make sure we all know about here, et cetera? Because I'll play it at the end if we don't play it. Oh, yeah. Time. Well, I did release a single um, earlier this year that was called Another New Normal. And it's about, you know, people are throwing around the term new normal a lot now to reference the pandemic. But one thought I had, I kind of wrote this in stolen moments between trying to quote unquote homeschool my kids last year. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, this is, this is definitely a new normal and it's a big, big new normal, but in a way it's one of many new normals in my life, like having your first baby and starting medical school and getting married and other, you know, there was a tornado in Nashville two weeks before the pandemic started and our whole, our whole neighborhood was torn apart. And I mean, this isn't the, this isn't the last, this isn't the first and this isn't the last new normal we're gonna have. So that's sort of what the song's about. It's another new normal.
Susie, thank you so much for sharing that song. It's an amazing song. And the fact that you were able to kind of have the time through everything else that was going on with COVID to kind of reflect on that bigger picture of new normal, which you're absolutely right. I mean, the tornado, the bombing, which is now, for those of you who don't live here, we had a big bomb that hit, hit Second Avenue and it destroyed a whole bunch of buildings. But now they're using that as a chance. And Sarah Rossetti and Molly are both in New York, so they'll appreciate that. We are now looking at making a pedestrian only area. And the New York Times did a whole piece about this as one of the ways to think about a new normal, which is, can we stop imagining cars on every street in a city and start imagining pedestrian only zones? What would that look like? And in the New York Times, they even did like an aerial view and then a new graphic of Fifth Avenue with no cars on it and with bars in the center and everything. So we're doing that. Nashville's going to create a brand new Second Avenue. And one of the plans is, why do we need cars on Second Avenue and First Avenue? Why can't we have more water features on First Avenue? That's amazing. And they just announced that they're thinking through it. But I think the song really is one that hopefully they'll be playing on those ads. Maybe we can convince them to do that. So thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for a really excellent time. Um, I'm going to have a lot of notes about the Clickbusters project and 25 by 5. And of course, Susie Brown Sachs and her links to her fantastic music. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having all of us. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay.
Thanks to all our guests today, Sarah Bland, Allison McCoy, Susie Brown Sachs, great song, Sarah Collins Rossetti, and Molly Hobensack. I hope you learned a little bit about the back office of healthcare and the challenges faced by healthcare workers, made even more challenging by the processes of care, the burden of too many clicks, and the loss of control that a lot within healthcare are dealing with right now. Basically, this is all about a loss of power, a loss of fun, and an overwhelming sense of unnecessary work. And I can understand why that's a problem. I personally look forward to addressing this problem in the next phase of my career. So this episode was an especially enlightening one for me. By the way, do me a favor. Tell a friend about the podcast and encourage them to listen. I'd love to get our listenership over 5,000. And I need your help. If you have suggestions or ideas about specific topics, hit me up on Twitter at KBJohnsonMD. Or if you think tweeting is for twits, email me at Kevin1061 at Comcast.net. I love hearing from you. Seriously. This is Kevin Johnson signing off. Have a wonderful rest of your day. See ya. Hashtag science. I'm living it.